Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery at your service. Thanks for tuning in to the China History Podcast. I know I say this a lot, but this topic today, long overdue. This was on the original list of topics I wrote down off the top of my head back in 2010. So today I'm going to give the Gaginang, the Gyochus of the world, the same introductory overview treatment that I gave the Hakka people in CHP episode 150. The first time I heard that word Gyochu, T-E-O-C-H-E-W, was back in the 80s. I heard the term from someone I knew in Singapore. Even with a few years of Mandarin under my belt, I'd never come across that word, Diochu. It didn't take long to figure out that the Diochu people were one and the same as the Chaozhou people. And Diochu is simply the word Chaozhou, mispronounced by me in their Diochu dialect. Now, don't hold me to the correct pronunciation, but they call themselves the Gaginang, which in Mandarin is written as Zijiren, our people. I'm going to use the three words for Diochu interchangeably throughout this episode. Mandarin, Chaozhou, Cantonese, Chiu but don't quote me on those tones, and Diochu in the local dialect. Please, at least give me an A for effort as far as my Diochu pronunciation goes. Diochu, Chaozhou, Chiu Same Chinese characters for all. The three main things that Diochu people the world over share in common with each other are, of course, this Diochu dialect spoken by about 15 million or so people worldwide. There's also this shared culture they have that includes their famous cuisine. And lastly, either they live in Chaozhou or they're descended or partly descended from people who originally came from this region. The city of Chaozhou gets all the glory and top billing, thanks in part to the fame and well-earned repute of their excellent Chujiao cuisine. But it would be much more accurate to call the Diochus the Chaoshan people. Chaoshan is the term used to describe the geographic area of Chaozhou and neighboring Shantou. Chaozhou, Shantou, Chaoshan the first characters of each of the two cities. Actually, there are three main cities that make up this rich Chaoshan coastal area. These are Chaozhou, Shantou, and the city of Jieyang. These three places are then further broken down into districts. And pretty much every Diochu on planet Earth can trace their lineage to any one of these eight districts from the Chaoshan region. Those of you good-looking listeners of mine who read Chinese history books will have come across the word swato more than once. Swato, S-W-A-T-O-W, is the same as shanto. What Diouzhu is to Chaozhou, that's what swato is to shanto. It's just the name of the city, again, mispronounced by me in the local dialect. My Mandarin is bad enough, so bear with me as I mangle all the Cantonese and Diochu pronunciations. Just north of this Chaoshan area, bordering it, in fact, is a place called Meizhou. And if you remember from that Hakka episode, Meizhou was sort of like the worldwide corporate headquarters of the Hakka people. But you see, the difference between the Hakkas of Meizhou and the Diochu of the Chaoshan region was that the Diochus came from that specific region. And their dialect was of that region, and it had similarities with other non-Diochu people of that part of China. 
The Hakkas of Meijou, on the other hand, didn't come from Meijou. That's just where they ended up after several waves of migration going back to the 4th century Jin dynasty and again in the 12th century with the Jurchen Jin dynasty. Like the Hakkas, the Diochu people also came from the central plains of China, where China began, Henan, Shanxi, the Yellow River Valley, thereabouts. Meizhou is far from the coast, and the Hakkas usually lived and farmed in the mountains and valleys. The Chaoshan people, on the other hand, they had it made. No mountains for them. They were right on the coast, where the soil was fertile and the supply of seafood unlimited. And besides that, Shantou had evolved into a thriving trading port for the region. Three nice-sized rivers ran right through Chaoshan, the Han, Huanggang, and Rong rivers. The Rong emptied out right into Shantou Harbor. It was a very efficiently watered world. The Diochus and Hakkas were both northern Han Chinese who had bolted from their original Henan Shanxi homeland when things got too precarious up there. They first fled during the Wuhu invasions of the 4th and 5th centuries. The Wuhu, the five beards or barbarians, these warriors from the surrounding steppe laid waste to the Jin dynasty. The Jin had come out on top at the conclusion of the Three Kingdoms period, but their dynasty wasn't terribly long-lasting. And when they fell, things got so nasty for the northern Han Chinese people that those who could hit the road and started heading in the opposite direction from whence these Wuhu came. These Wuhu, these big five who chased the future Teojus out of their Yellow River Valley homeland, were of course the longtime nemesis of the Han Chinese going back to the Han Dynasty, the Xiongnu, as well as the Xianbei, Jie, Qiang, and Di people. The violence that came in the wake of these invading steppe people caused a massive migration of northern Han Chinese to the safer regions of Jiangnan, southern China, south of the Yangtze River. And this wouldn't be the last time either that northern Han aristocrats and everyone else who had the means to flee abandoned the north and the central plains of China for warmer and safer climes down in the south. But it mostly began during the early 4th century, the time of Constantine the Great in the West. And then during the 300 years between the fall of the Jin and the early Tang Dynasty in the 7th century, so many Han Chinese opted to vacate the premises. The Hakkas were one group, and so were the Diochus. The Diochu people kept running until they ended up in what is today southern Fujian, the Quanzhou, Putian area mostly. It was between the Tang and Yuan dynasties, maybe in search of greener pastures, that these Diochu people, originally from the China heartland, now mostly in southernmost Fujian province, began to make their way further down the coast to what was geographically easternmost Guangdong province. Now, one interesting thing about the Diochu people, these people of the Chaoshan region of Guangdong, their language is not Cantonese, not even a dialect of Cantonese. On a map... Chaozhou ended up in Guangdong province, but linguistically speaking, these Chaozhou or Diochu people have more in common with the people of southern Fujian. It's where they came from, though not 
ontologically speaking. In China, I know you heard this before, there are seven main dialect groups. Mandarin, Wu, Yue, Xiang, Gan, Hakka, and Min. Now, simply put, Wu is everything surrounding Shanghai. Yue is Cantonese. Xiang is Hunanese. Gan is Jiangxi. And Hakka, well, they're special. And Min, Min stands for Fujian. In fact, when you drive around Fujian province, you have the character Min on all the license plates to identify them as Fujian registered. On a simple level, there are five main regional dialects of Fujian province. The ones on the coast and the ones inland. In Fuzhou, where the Min River empties out into the East China Sea, you would hear the Min Dong or Eastern Min dialect. There are also dialects for northern Fujian called uh, Min Bei or northern Min. There's no western Min since western Fujian is heavily Hakka based. There's also a central Min dialect and the one we're concerned with, southern Min or Minnan. The Diochu people, as I said, ended up in the southernmost corner of Fujian province, right where it collides with the easternmost tip of Guangdong. So once again, a key point. The Diochus have more in common with Fujian than to Guangdong. And that's why the Diochu people speak a dialect of the southern Min variety and not a dialect of Cantonese. There's six tones in Chaozhouhua, two more than in Mandarin and two less than in Cantonese. Now, I learned this back in the 90s when I was in the ceramics business. I worked with this factory in Chaozhou who made these traditional Chinese fish bowls and vases that we sold to Kmart in the U.S. Even though it was only a five-hour drive by car from Guangzhou, no one at this Chaozhou factory spoke Cantonese. My Hong Kong Chinese colleagues spoke to them in Mandarin. That was my realization that the language these Chaozhou people spoke had nothing to do with Cantonese. And I found out you could set off from downtown Chaozhou, drive to the border of Fujian province in less than an hour, with no traffic, that is. Some of you are wondering, then, if that's Diochu, then what's this Hakien dialect? Diochu and Hakien, what's up with that? Well, they're not the same, but both being Minnan, or southern Min dialects, they're pretty close. You could think of Hakien as the language of Taiwan and the three main cities of southern Fujian, Xiamen, Quanzhou, and Zhangzhou. Zhangzhou is the last major city in southern Fujian. If you keep driving, you'll be at the border with Chaozhou in two hours. Hakien, by the way, is just the name for Fujian in that Minnan dialect. Hak is Fu, Qian is Jian. In fact, the Cantonese refer to these guys as Haklo, Fujian guys or Fujian folks. Haklo, they're just people from Fujian. The Cantonese say Haklo. In Mandarin, it's either Fulao or Hulo. The proper way, of course, is simply Fujianren. Worldwide, there are roughly 25 million or so Diochu people. Hey, man, that's the population of Australia. About half live in the Chaozhou Shantou Jieyang area, and the rest are spread out all over the world, but mostly in the greater China region. The highest concentration of Diochu people outside China are in Thailand, believe it or not. Thailand is home to the largest overseas Chinese community in the world. Not a very well-known fact. Nine million. That's more than double the number of Chinese Americans. And of all the ethnic Chinese in the land of smiles, 
56% are Diochu. The balance, 44%, are made up of the usual suspects, Hakien, Hakka, Hainanese, and Cantonese. In Singapore, the Hakien slightly outnumber the Diochus to take the top spot there. A lot of Diochus ended up in Vietnam. No surprise there. Cantonese and Hakien are there too, of course. And a whole bunch of these Vietnamese Diochu, Hwakyu, in the 1970s emigrated to Europe, Australia, Canada, and here to the good old USA. Just in L.A. alone, there are quite a few Diochu who lived in Vietnam for generations before coming to the U.S. Well, besides Vietnam, suffice to say, Diochu communities are all over Southeast Asia. Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia, Philippines, all over. Not every Diochu on the planet speaks the dialect. There's maybe 10 million speakers inside the Chaoshan region and perhaps another 3 million or so outside. I'm guessing less and less of the younger generation are learning the dialect and the attrition rates has got to be pretty bad in the 21st century. One other thing, like the Hakkas who did not go in for the whole foot-binding thing, the Diochus did partake of that custom. The two peoples were very similar in many ways, but they parted ways on that score. The Hakkas were among the great farmers of China, and it made no sense to diminish their labor force by binding the feet of their women folk. In the towns and villages where Hakka and Diochu borders meet in Chaozhou and Jieyang, it was common for the folk out there to be familiar with each other's dialect, even though the two had nothing in common linguistically. The history of this coastal region of Fujian and Guangdong predates the arrival of the Diochus. As far as I can tell, the Chaoshan region got written into the history books during the time of the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang. Perhaps you recall the CHP episodes on the history of Hong Kong, Part 1, and the rise and fall of the Qin, Part 2. I mentioned this before. Way down in the south was the Nanhai Commandery. Commanderies, or Jin, went back to the Zhou Dynasty. These were forts that kept an eye on all the frontier lands in between the counties. When the Qin Emperor unified the country, he divided everything up initially into 36 commanderies. This Chaoshan region, not called that yet, by the way, was a small, unimportant part of the Nanhai commandery. Nanhai, South Sea, those two characters for 2,000 years will come to define that whole region down there. And the one in charge of the Nanhai commandery was a major guy in Guangdong history, Zhao Tuo. You perhaps recall he was the one who rose up against the Qin government after Qin Shi Huang died and everything for his dynasty began to unravel. Zhao Tuo went on to form the Nanyue kingdom. It's all discussed before. The Nanyue, of course, will be relegated to the dustbin of Chinese history once the Han Emperor Wu arrives on the scene, about a century after the demise of the Qin Emperor. During the time in between the Eastern Han and unification under the Sui, the people living down there, who were not calling themselves the Diochu people yet, got shifted around from one jurisdiction to another until the year 590, when, under the founding emperor Wen of Sui, Chao Prefecture was set up. And back then, these prefectures were called a Zhou. So, Chao Prefecture, Chao Zhou, Qiu Zhao, Diu Zhu, 
That's where that all comes from. Throughout most of uh, Chinese imperial history, the place was referred to as the Haiyang District. After the fall of the Qing, the ROC government renamed it Chao'an County. So this homeland of the Diuchu people, the Chaoshan Ren, has been on the map for more than 2,200 years. Like almost every place in China, what they used to call it a thousand years ago and what they call it today has some variance. But it's only been called Chaozhou for maybe 1,700 of those years. And that's based on recorded history. But archaeologists have dug plenty of Neolithic tools and implements out of the ground that proves human beings populated that region for something like 8,000 years. You know, to be perfectly honest, the Chaoshan region, in the context of Chinese history, it isn't really a famous or important place. Chaozhou is not a Beijing or a Shanghai or a Wuhan, Kaifeng, Guangzhou, or Hangzhou, places that are coated thick with all kinds of Chinese history. Chaozhou's claim to fame ended up being the achievements of its native sons and daughters who left the homeland and went on to globalize the Chaozhou people. By fanning out across the world, they also spread awareness about the culture and the whole big, shiny Gyochu brand. I'll circle back later and we'll look at some of the Wenhua, the culture that Chaozhou is famous for. I already mentioned ceramics. They're famous for a whole lot more. During the Qing Dynasty, when times got tough, beginning around the second half of the Qianlong Emperor's overly long reign, the Diochu people were right at the front of the line with millions of other Chinese, mostly men at the beginning, who participated in this great 19th century diaspora. Most all of these Chinese came from a beltway that stretched from Hainan Island in the west to all points surrounding the Pearl River Delta, eastward, up the coast of Guangdong, and into Fujian province. The Diojus were part of that whole migration of Chinese who reluctantly left their homeland in the 1800s to try their luck elsewhere on six continents. And just like the Hakkas, the Hakkian, Cantonese, and all these other coastal dwellers, the men from Chaozhou, Shantou, and Jieyang, these Chaoshan Ren, they too went out and built beachheads in all the up-and-coming commercial centers in Asia and the West. And it didn't take long for the Diochus to establish a reputation for being unusually shrewd at business. Besides famine, war, natural disasters, and political instability, there were two main reasons for leaving the comforts of home. One was related to kinship, and the other was contractual. In the former, it was the old case of one brave soul, blazed the trail first, got set up in a new land, and then called for more family members to help him in his enterprise. And he served as the anchor to offer stability and support for those of his kin who followed. In these so-called credit ticket migrations, this involved migrants who were recruited in their hometowns to work wherever there was a labor shortage. And these kind of migrants didn't have any kin where they were going. These folk, which of course included many diochus, signed contracts and then went off to toil in any number of lines of work that well, mostly involved heavy lifting or a lot of bending and squatting. During the 1850s to the 1870s, this was especially true. Trade was 
booming. And Chinatowns were popping up in more places than just Southeast Asia. The Taiping Rebellion and the general degradation of late Qing society offered plenty of impetus for Diochus and others to consider these overseas options. In the 1850s and 60s, the Diochus joined their Cantonese cousins in the gold mines and in laying down railroad tracks in the United States. One good example of an early Diochu who made good would be She Yojin. I'm not sure I can pronounce his name the same way they do it in Singapore, but he was known in the local dialect as Xie Yujin. His surname, She, is the one that in Mandarin rhymes with snake, and I always get it mixed up with the character for the surname Yu. The She surname is one of the more special ones in the world of Diochus. Those from this She clan trace their arrival in Chaozhou to an ancient descendant that went all the way back to the Liu Song dynasty, 420 to 479. And that was the first of the northern and southern dynasties, the Nanbei Chao. The Liu Song was one of the southern ones. So Shi Jin's clan had this nice pedigree. In every overseas Chinese community, in every city and town, there were always those like Shi Jin who got there first, took their lumps with the locals, learned the language, established a foothold, and then thrived. And from these early pioneers rose leaders for each and every sub-community. Shi Yujin, after building his fortune in the 1830s, became the community leader for the Diochus in Singapore. When the Sultan of Johar signed the treaty with Sir Stamford Raffles in February of 1819, that got the whole Singapore thing up and running. And there were less than 500 Diochu at the time. Shi Yojin arrived in Singapore in 1823, right at the beginning. Nothing like getting in at the ground floor. After trying his hand at trading, he went into the Gambier business. <laughs> hey, I didn't know what that was either. Gambier is a plant extract that was mostly used as a brown-colored tanning agent in the leather industry. It was also a Chinese medicine. It was a big business in the mid-19th century, and the Saudi Arabia of Gambier was Malaysia and Indonesia as well. Now, he got into the business during the boom years. They lasted a long time, and it seeded a great fortune. And Shi Yojin and his descendants lived in this magnificent house in Singapore, and a lot of Diochus got into this Gambier industry. Two decades after Shi Yojin arrived in Singapore, the Teochew community had grown to almost 20,000. By the time of the 1881 census, there were 22,644, which, thanks to the wave of Hakien migration from Malacca, put the Teochews in second place behind the Hakien population. Teochew and Hakien together comprised about half the total Singapore Chinese population. The word must have got out about the rich pickings to be had in the Lion City because Hakian people came in waves during the 1820s from all over Southeast Asia and southern Fujian. The Hakas and Gyochus always use Shanto as their launching point for Southeast Asia. The Hakian people mostly sailed out of Xiamen, which back in the day was known as Amoy. That's how you say Xiamen in the local lingo. Amoy was also one of the new treaty ports that got pried open in the 1840s. 
Shi Yujin, together with other Diochus from various clans, formed what became known as the Nian Gongsi, or in Mandarin, the Yian Gongsi. And this association became the earliest collective voice of the Diochu community in Singapore. And their mission was to be the go-to local organization for anything related to Diochu rights, customs, religious beliefs, and like any other Chinese Benevolent Association, they had to look after all Diochus in need and act as a support group. It was even left to them to play a hand in promoting education within the community of Diochus in Singapore. They're still around today, though their influence over the community became quite diminished around the 1930s. The Singapore Eight Districts Association is the big one today, the Chaozhou Ba Yi Hui Guan. Eight districts, again, because all Diochu, Chiu Chao, people come from one of the eight districts of the Chaoshan region. Shi Yujin, like other prominent and successful Chinese, often acted as a go-between whenever the British had to interface with the Chinese community on some important issue. For example, in 1854, when the Diochus and Hakyan of Singapore were killing each other over an economic dispute, Shi Yujin was called in by the British to make a deal with Hakian leaders to end the bloodletting. So he was a major guy in early Singaporean history, and typical in some ways of the hometown boy who leaves Chaozhou, creates a fortune in business overseas, and gives back to the place from which he came and brings glory to his people. Shi Yujin was one of the early Diochu greats. His grave was later lost to history, but was recently rediscovered in November 2012 on Grave Hill near the Caldecott subway station. There were other early Chaozhou pioneers of Singapore history. Shi Yujin was just one of them. Chaozhou was one of the later treaty ports opened in 1858. Actually, whenever you refer to the port, geographically speaking, you're talking about Shantou. Shantou had the best location as a port for trade went. And this was how goods and people got in and out of the Chaoshan region until railroads and air travel started to happen. Like others who made their home along the South China coast, they knew how to eat well. Guangdong was always a rich province. The same could be said of Fujian. Chiu cuisine is one of the greats of Chinese regional cuisines. Chaoshan Cai. It's not Fujianese nor Cantonese, but the Chaozhounese drew inspiration from both of those styles of cooking. Seafood and vegetables are what they're most famous for. And some complain that Chiu Chao food is slightly bland, but with Chiu Chao food, there's no need to bury the natural flavor with peppers, spices, pungent sauces, and fragrances. To me, the essence of preparing Chaozhou food involves steaming, lightly flavoring, and as fresh as possible. My very first boss, after I moved out to Hong Kong in 1989, was Mr. Frank Yang. He and his family, his wife, they were all Chaozhou people. So this was the very first culture I got to see and take part in once I moved out there. All company functions, weddings, spring festival banquets were always held at one of a couple Chaozhou restaurants in Hong Kong. And whenever we wined and dined out of towners, you can bet it was always at one of the best possible Chiu Chao seafood palaces in Hong Kong. 
Notable dishes are rogu cha, a kind of meat soup. I don't think I ever had two that tasted the same. Chao cho, braised goose, is another mainstay. There's also a goose dish called lu shui e that always seems to be on the table for starters. Chiu chow food is flooded with so many crab and fish dishes. A true signature dish is a kind of dong xie, a, a crab in the shell, of course, that's eaten cold. Oysters are also a major ingredient. If you don't like seafood, chiu chow cuisine is perhaps not for you. Being on the coast and all, in the South China Sea, being a haven for sharks, shark fin soup was also a big chiu chow food item. Now, share prices in shark fin soup have tanked over the years, thanks to Yao Ming and Wild Aid, who spoke out about the realities of the shark fin harvesting process. Sales are down more than 50%. But when it was still okay to order it, the chefs of Chiu Zhao took the art of preparing and serving shark's fins to great heights. There's always these great sauces that pair with various Chiu Zhao foods, and this cuisine is one of the only Chinese cuisines I ever experienced that also uses fish sauce. Yu Lu in Mandarin, Nok Mam in Vietnamese. It's a very particular Southeast Asian kind of flavor. And if you ask for it in a Chiu Zhao place, they'll have it. Chao Zhou's entry to the honor roll of great Chinese sauces is called Sha Cha Sauce. It's real thick, made from soybean oil shallots, dried fish, dried shrimp, and a nice kick of chili and garlic. Sha cha, this is the same as saute sauce that maybe some of you might know of. Saute, you can get instant noodles with this sha cha flavor. That's another great taste of chao zhou. Chao zhou guo tiao is the best known noodle dish. That's as common and traditional as it comes. In Vietnam, they call it hu tiu. It's a kind of rice or egg noodle soup filled with all kinds of choices of meats, seafood, and other ingredients beloved by so many. It's not a one-size-fits-all dish, and there's all kinds of variations, and different people take it different ways. But that's a big one. Any respectable chow dive will have that on the menu. Every major regional cuisine in China has their own spin on soups, Kanjis, fish cakes, rice flour cakes, egg dishes, braised dishes, hot pots, desserts, noodles, and dumplings. Chaozhou food has their own version of all that, too. I'm not going to say it's my favorite, but for most of my Chinese friends, even those not of the Diochu persuasion, they say this style of eating is always high on their list, and it's considered fine dining. A dinner out for four at a nice, sparkly chiu chow joint with all the trimmings is not a cheap date. The steamed fish alone can set you back 50 or 100 bucks. If you have access to chiu chow food where you live and never tried it before, go check it out. If you want to learn how to cook chow chow cai, there are many Diochu cookbooks available and videos galore on YouTube and other video streaming platforms. The glittery Chaocho seafood emporiums are great, and so are the small dives found in Chinatowns the world over. And fortunately for yours truly, they're all over the San Gabriel Valley, Little Saigon, and L.A. Chinatown. There are always one or two Chaocho-owned shops that carries 
all the greatest hits of Chaucho-style breakfasts and lunches. To me, in my worthless opinion, the best part about going out for Chaocho food is the Gongfu Cha. That tradition is pure Chaocho. No matter if you're at some Chaocho restaurant or at someone's home, out will come a plate of Gongfu tea when you arrive and before you leave. If you recall from that 10-part history of tea series from days gone by, Gongfu Cha was a tea prepared in a very precise, deliberate, and careful manner. That's why it's called Gongfu Cha. Gongfu means effort, or to try hard. You had to use a little effort to make this kind of tea. There's a whole process. It's not like taking a tea bag and letting it steep in a teapot for a few minutes. So when you serve someone this tea, this Gongfu Cha, no matter at a restaurant or at some kind of social gathering, when you drink it, you could pause and reflect on the time and effort it took for your host to prepare this kind of tea for you. It implies humility, respect, and welcoming generosity. In the Teochew Chaozhou style, as soon as you sit down at your seat, someone will come out and welcome you with a plate of small teacups, each filled with a strong Tieguanyin tea, a type of oolong. You take it all in with one sip. That's all you can get in one cup. But it's rich and certainly welcoming. The same ritual is repeated at the end of the meal as well. You get your Teochew send-off also with your tiny cup of Gong Fu tea. It's a great little custom. And I'm a sucker for drinking tea from tiny, delicate porcelain cups. The other tea that is particularly associated with Chao Shan is called Dan Song Cha. If you could get your hands on authentic Dan Song tea, you're lucky. It's another kind of Wulong with a distinctive flavor of that region. What else defines Teochew culture besides their language, their distinctive cuisine and beautiful tea culture? Just like with their own style of Chinese food that takes regular dishes and turns them uniquely into a Chaocho style, the same can be said of their opera, dance, music, embroidery, wood carving, and as I said before, in the ceramic arts. Every pocket of China has their own take on all these signature arts of Chinese culture. Chaozhou opera, Chaozhou, I'm not sure how much the younger generation embraces this, but it's been popular for a thousand years. It borrows heavily from Song Dynasty Nanxi, or Southern Drama, as well as Kunqiu, or Kun Opera. Kunqiu was popular in the Ming and Qing, and many of the older generation, the more traditional ones at least, still love it. Chinese opera, Peking, Sichuan, Cantonese, Chu Zhao, it's a whole world. There's so much to it. I also must admit, although I love watching it, I can't say I'm familiar with what's going on. The Chu Zhao people came up with their own version, and although it isn't as popular and recognizable as their great food and tea culture, it's something about Chao Zhou culture that they call their own. The top... Chiu Chao surnames, Tan and Lim are the big two. That's Chun and Lin in Mandarin. Ng, Go, and Te round off the top five. And those are better known in Mandarin as Huang, Wu, and Zheng. Number six is Li. And speaking of Li, perhaps the most famous Chao Zhou Ren of them all has that surname. 
And I featured this person in an episode from way back in 2010, episode CHP 13. The Chuchao people have worldwide bragging rights to one of the richest tycoons in Asia, Sir Li Ka Shing, worth more than $30 billion for as long as I could remember. He was always the number one or two richest person in Asia. But now, with billionaires being a dime a dozen in China, Sir K.S. Lee has dropped to second place behind China's Wang Jianlin, who currently wears the championship belt for richest man in Asia. But Wang Da's Mr. Wang isn't from Chaozhou. He's from Guangyuan in Sichuan, the birthplace of Wu Zetian. Trivia for you. Li Kaxing, however, he came from Chaozhou. When times got tough, he left Chaozhou and came to Hong Kong in the 1940s. Just like Se Eugene, who got into the Gambier business in Singapore just as the industry was taking off, Li Kaxing got into the plastics business right at the beginning and built a fortune that today is worth about $80 billion. His wealth is mostly derived from his significant stake in these companies, Qiangong and Hutchison Wampoa. His Li Kaxing Foundation is a major player in the world of philanthropy, and his hometown has been one of the prime beneficiaries of his generosity. Sir K.S. Lee is an extreme case of someone who left his hometown and never forgot where he came from. The success that Sir Li Kaxing achieved allowed him to donate money to build Shantou University, the Cheongkong Graduate School of Business, and well, he's given to universities and institutions the world over. So Li Ka-shing, now pushing 90 years old, is always pointed to as the ultimate model son of Chaozhou, who, like others before him, brought glory and pride to his hometown by leaving it. He's not the only Diochu who made good. Hong Kong's other famous Chiu Zhaoyan are Joseph Lau of Chinese Estates Holdings, Lin Poryan, Lin Baixin of the Lai Sun Group, uh, Albert Yang, Yang Shoucheng of the Emperor Group, and Vincent Lo, Luo Kangrei of Sino Land. And of course, my old boss, Mr. Frank Yang. Those are just the best known. There are, of course, many others, and all have helped to stoke the reputation Chaozhou people have earned as industrious, hardworking, and very strong in business. In the rice business, especially in Thailand, ethnic Chaozhou people dominate and have dominated for as long as anyone could remember. The CP group, yeah, that guy too. Thailand's richest man, Danin Jirawatnan, a.k.a. Xie Guomin, he came from Chaozhou people, too, who left China in the 1920s. As soon as they arrived in Bangkok, they went straight into the agribusiness industry and never left it. The man who brought us QQ and Weixin, WeChat, Pony Ma, Ma Hua Tang, he, too, is a card-carrying member of the Chaozhou people. I mentioned how there are a lot of Vietnamese Hua Q who also call Chaozhou their ancestral home. And this includes... Mr. David Tran. He's a Vietnamese Chu Zhou. Came here to the beautiful country in 1978. He started a company here in L.A. called Hui Feng Foods, and they make the famous Sriracha chili sauce, beloved by Vietnamese and millions of others the world over. And lately, imitated by Fortune 500 companies and small batch Sriracha makers the world over. Mr. David Tran, Vietnamese Chu Zhou, 
my hero. Tran is the Vietnamese version of Chan or Tan in uh, the Chu Chao dialect. So that's the skinny on the Teochew people, a.k.a. the Chu Chao people, a.k.a. the Chao Chou people, a.k.a. the Gaginang or Zijiren. Everything's Chao Chou this and Chao Chou that. But one of the takeaways I hope you got is that Teochews come from Chao Chou, Shantou, and Jiayang, and collectively those three cities make up what's known as the Chaoshan region. Don't ask me how the city of Jiayang got left out of Chaoshan or why Chaozhou City ended up being the one with top billing. The other takeaways I hope you got from this episode, their dialect is not of the Yue variety that makes up most of Guangdong province. Linguistically, they're closer to the southern Fujianese. They're famous for their food and their business tycoons. Their music, especially their Chaozhou or Chaozhou opera, is also considered to be quite special. I wish I could tell you more about it. All in all, as far as a total package goes, Chaozhou culture is highly ranked in the pecking order. And it's, of course, a major contributor of the overall and highly enriched Lingnan culture of Guangdong province. Historically, they perhaps haven't had many heroes or important figures who topped the charts like other parts of China had. They were great for what they did when hard times and chaos forced them to consider pulling up stakes and heading overseas. Wherever they went, they became what later immigrants aspired to be. Now, not every Chao Nis who left Chaoshan became a Li Ka-shing or a Joseph Lao. But all over the world, there are boundless Diochu success stories in business, the sciences, politics, academia, all over the world. So that's going to be it for this time. Just a little overview of Chaozhou, the people, and the culture. I hope my Diochu listeners in greater China and Southeast Asia aren't too disappointed by my Zoma Kanhua intro to their history. Okay, until the next time, this is Laszlo Montgomery once again signing off from the fabulous city of Los Angeles, California, founded 1781, Qing Dynasty, late Qianlong era. Consider joining me next time for another satisfying and easy-to-digest episode of the China History Podcast, a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network at recordedhistory.net.